Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode three of Stop, Drop, and Watch Bridgerton. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Kat. And today we have another special guest, our friend John, who's basically like a little brother to me. So you can effectively think of this as a three siblings podcast right now. Hey, folks. I'm John. So I'm watching Bridgerton. Mostly I was drawn to it because it was like Gossip Girl in a Victorian era. I was a big fan of the original Gossip Girl, minus the ending. I'll try and stay away from spoilers there. Bridgerton sounds like Gossip Girl plus history. So, you know, what's there not to like? Today's episode begins with a ball scene, and it turns out it's actually a dream scene. It starts off with Daphne dancing with the Duke alone in a ballroom. I was actually really surprised because her hair was down in this scene at a ball, which I don't know if that's historically accurate or not. Unfortunately, we don't have Ashley this time. We just have John, so we can't actually gut check that. (laughs) I don't think Um, so. Yeah, I think it's not, or at least when you're a debutante, because they talk about how Eloise has to put her hair up next year. Yeah, I can't comment on the historical accuracy here, but um, you know, I don't, I don't think we've seen any girls to date with the hair down. It's all been updos. Yeah, and then we get to quickly realize it's a dream because she wakes up in a hot sweat pretty much in her bed, which I found to be really entertaining. I, <laughs> I thought about it more. I'm like, this is like the probably the classiest way to ever realize you're into someone is having a ballroom dancing scene to tell you that. That's so true. I Yeah. I'm trying to imagine or remember the times where I realized I'm into someone and it's never been in such an <laughs> elegant way. Also, like, I mean, come on. We realized this was a dream. Like, early on, there's, like, people dancing everywhere. It's got that little kind of dreamy vibe. And then all of a sudden, it's just her and the Duke. And it's like, all right, where'd everybody go? <laughs> okay, John was not captivated by her dream. But <laughs> from there, we get to learn that Lady Whistledown is writing about Daphne again, saying that she's actually rejected three proposals so far, and they get to show Daphne and Duke at the ice cream parlor. There's a lot of zoom-ins on Simon while he's eating his ice cream. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know, like, did he just not order enough ice cream? Was he trying to savor every last bite? That was a lot. It was a lot. Like, maybe if I'm eating ice cream by myself, you know, on a date, you know, I probably, you know, just just go for, like, the single bite. I'm not going to be, like, caressing the spoon with my tongue to get like that last bit of flavor out like there's not a normal way to eat ice cream (laughs) well like when you're by yourself like you know and like you know you just like you have your ice cream on your spoon you like you do you look at kind of like a tootsie pop a little bit you know (laughs) am i the only one that does this yes (laughs) well i i also was very frustrated again because they were having this discussion about their ruse in the middle of a full ice cream parlor when everyone is looking at them pretty much i just can't take this world right afterwards is when we go to the featherington's parlor again and their first kind of mentions of a prince coming to town come up and we have a scene where marina and lady featherington are talking about her future and what's going to happen lady featherington i don't know if either of you watched this but she really reminds me of julie cooper from the oc That was the mom of Marissa Cooper. Both of you don't seem to know what I'm talking about, but not only do these two actresses look like actual sisters, if you look them up, they actually have really similar roles too, where they both kind of married for money and they're dealing with this like deadbeat husband working their tail off to keep it together. One of my main takeaways from this scene is that Lady Featherington is kind of made out to be like a villain or a bad guy. 
But you know what? She's actually really doing what she can to keep it together. And yes, it's in you know her best interest and her daughter's best interest to not have Marina be totally exposed. But on the other hand, she's doing what she can to help her and set her up to not be like this ruined woman. Um, and she could have exposed her. She also you know, tells her, you need to be wed as soon as possible. And Marina is not into it. Marina still has George. She thinks she's waiting for him. So I guess I kind of understand it. But Lady Featherington is trying to be practical and telling her, you know what? You've got a deadbeat baby daddy. It's time to cut him loose and find a husband who's going to provide for you and your child. No, I actually really agree. Like, you know, a theme throughout this whole episode is just like playing the game and playing the cards you have dealt. And, you know, Lady Featherington, she... In, in her own kind of messed up way, is doing what she thinks is best. I still find Marina be kind of a confusing character. Like, when we first meet her, she still has George at this point, but she flirts with all the men. But then she's pregnant, and now is not willing to, like, flirt or, like, talk to any men at all. Like, I don't understand how he went from, like, where I have this guy at home, but now I'm pregnant. So, like, I refuse to talk to anyone else. It just felt very, like, sudden to me for her character to just be making all these changes. The next scene is another mother-daughter scene between the Viscountess and Daphne, where the Viscountess tells Daphne to marry the man who feels like your dearest friend, which sounds like, oh, this really sweet, romantic mom advice. But I actually thought it was kind of weird. Firstly, because Daphne doesn't actually have any other friends, at least that we've seen. We never see her having, you know, a fun conversation with other female characters in this show. And she's not even close to her sister, Eloise, who's the closest to her in age. I also think, personally, it's super unrealistic to expect your significant other to be your everything. Not only your romantic partner, but also to be your closest friend. To me, I actually think that you should have other best friends outside of just your romantic partner. You know... I actually thought this was like some pretty good motherly advice. A- aside from the fact that I didn't actually realize Daphne doesn't have any friends, so maybe maybe she's like a crazy sociopath. Um, <laughs> but no, I think like, look, you know, you're not going to necessarily like find all the qualities that you need perfectly formed in a partner. I just found it to be unrealistic since she spends so little time with other men and especially other suitors like she gets maybe to do a dance with them and she asks them where they should they want to live in the country or the city and that's how she's supposed to determine who her best friend is i mean i guess there's not a lot of competition if she doesn't have other friends so from there we move into another ball scene where a bad guy gets to play and this gets get to see a lot of different guys asking for daphne to dance and kind of a connection between the Duke and Daphne. I mean, bad guy, great song choice. I think a better song choice might have been like No Scrubs, TLC. <laughs> Simon really hams up the, the jealousy in the scene, if I recall, and then you know sends sends Daphne off into the arms of basically Dweebo, <laughs> into Dweebo suitor with each guy, just somehow each guy getting progressively worse. Where the first one, like, okay, you're not going to get very deep asking people if they prefer the town or the country, but this guy literally can't answer even that question. Like, okay, yeah, like maybe he's not going to be your best friend. Into like guy number two who is going on and on about the size of his family estate, which I don't know if he's like compensating for something. Like, there's definitely <laughs> something weird going on there. But like, they really they really cap it off with the last guy where. He's got the the weird Oedipus mother complex where he's like, yep, mother's coming to live with us when we get married. And you can just see, like, I feel like this is like a uniquely 
female experience, or at least one that I've never had as a male, where I've never really been in a situation with a member of the opposite gender and just like looked around and be like, somebody please save me from this. I have to say the one thing that bothered me about that scene is that I think this is the first time we have an actor of Indian descent getting any lines and the fact that he's talking, like just really being really stuck up bragging about what his family owns and their property felt kind of stereotypical to me, like bad stereotypes like they were playing into. So I was kind of uncomfortable with that. I feel like it would have been maybe worse if he would have been the one that his mom came to live with him. I don't know. I feel True. like both, both are probably pretty bad assumptions. I guess he can only be the guy who can't answer a question. Good point. Good point. So from there, we get to see that Simon and Daphne are kind of imitating or guessing what the Prince Friedrich is saying to the other woman, which I thought was very much, again, like hinting to their friendship growing. I also, maybe I'm being too cynical for a TV show, but I was like, there's no way that he guessed the word the prince was using to everyone was exquisite. That was just, it was a little too much. I don't know. He's he's from Prussia. He's got a limited vocabulary. Exquisite's just his word. Yeah, those were the those are the first impressions, I guess. <laughs> like you know, here here comes Prince Charming, and he he's basically playing the trope to a T. You know, there there's definitely a fun history tangent to go into here, which is Bridgerton takes place in 1813, which is right around the Napoleonic Wars, and interestingly enough, for Prussia, it's right after Napoleon suffered his infamous defeat at his invasion of Russia. And so finally withdrawing from the Russian front, battered and beaten, he withdraws from Prussia. And so this is probably the first time you'd see Prussia rejoining that UK-Russia alliance and cozying kind of back Mm. up into them. And so, you know, it's, it's this fun little like, there's maybe like a little double meaning here in the prince showing up and being like, hey, cozying back up for the backdrop of these war that's going on in the background which surprisingly enough plays like a major role in the story because you know marina's baby daddy is off in spain the one thing that i think i found off-putting about the prince it has nothing to do with him as a character i think he's you know lovely prince charming but he's wearing that that german iron cross which i know at the time doesn't have kind of the the stigma or meaning that we associate with it now but it's still just like very shocking to to see in any media given like what the meaning that it kind of later takes on maybe my bias is coming out but i thought he had beautiful eyes so i was mostly looking at his face when he entered the next scene is when genevieve delacroix the dressmaker shows up and is talking to sienna and we finally get the hey she doesn't actually speak french as a native language which my partner is a native french speaker so it was very clear to me at the beginning of the show that her french accent was absolutely atrocious I didn't know if it was the actor and a bad dialect coach or what was going on. So I was actually pretty grateful that they cleared this up as, yeah, no, this woman is just acting uh, or just pretending to be French so that people take her more seriously as a dressmaker. I don't think I ever, when you talked about it right now, I didn't know until then. (laughs) I definitely watched it twice and I never thought about it. What? I was just it like, was oh, so I wonder bad. what wine they're drinking. <laughs> oh my god, her accent was so bad. <laughs> you're you're hurting me. You're hurting me right now. I heard her accent, but I just didn't like. I I was more focusing on like what they were saying to each other than like what accent she was. Oh speaking my in. god. 
I mean, you even no, talk about she... accents. The king of Prussia has no accent in English, and he knows Wait, what yes, it's he does. Wait, yes, yes he, he does. Wait, yes, he does. It's not that bad. <laughs> That's because he has amazing tutors because he's royalty. Unlike <laughs> the Genevieve, who doesn't have amazing tutors and so has a terrible fake French accent. Well, I don't know what to say about it. <laughs> what I focused on was, I was like, okay, this is actually a real friendship where they could talk to each other <laughs> and have each other's back. <laughs> yeah, I definitely glossed over that and was just thinking about, oh, thank God they finally dropped that accent and made it clear that no, she does not speak French. This is obviously why we do the podcast together, because we focus on very <laughs> different things. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like, I, they were tricked. I was tricked. Like, you know, we can all move on and buy our dresses. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But the, the actual content of this scene, <laughs> it's, it's you know, how, how do women make their way in the world? And, you know, here we see that if you're Genevieve, you, you con your way into some semblance of respectability and, you know, master your craft. Um, if you're Sienna, you're doing the singing thing. <laughs> also trying to find a man. I don't know. I, I I like Genevieve's character as this strong, independent woman. And then Sienna's like solution in this is like, I'm going to find a man <laughs> that'll actually take care of me. And it's like, yeah, okay. Did that make you feel uncomfortable as a man, John? Maybe, maybe. I, I you know, I, I personally am looking for my sugar mama. So <laughs> um, really just, uh... Yeah, I guess it's just like me projecting my own insecurities onto the characters of Bridgerton. Um, <laughs> Genevieve, you know, actually being like, I'm making my way in the world. I'm doing my terms. I don't care who I got to lie, cheat, and steal to, <laughs> you know? And it's like oddly, like, feels like uplifting or empowering to see, you know, somebody like, I don't know. It's kind of an underdog story. I, I like the underdog. And then, you know, the, the Sienna story is just, it's just sad. I, I, I just feel like, the, the solution to your problems being like find a man just I, I guess it's like historically accurate but it just feels eh, off-putting i think the main difference though between sienna and genevieve is that genevieve can continue to be a dressmaker for the rest of her you know working career into you know her 40s 50s and so forth but sienna is an opera singer like as an opera singer you can't actually continue your entire life at some point, you know, you don't have the same like vocal range or ability to sing the songs that you can in your, you know, teens, 20s, early 30s, whatever. Good point. I mean, I'm team Sienna, clearly. So I'm going to defend her. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm team Sienna too. I'm just, I, I just, you know, I was like, you know, girl, girl, you can do better. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great segue into the next scene, which is actually when Anthony and Simon are in the club. I don't even know. I guess it's some sort of gentleman's club, but you know what? It is. It's a club. They're in a club. Anthony confronts Simon again, and then Sienna comes over and actually hits on Simon. What did you think, Kat? Do you think that Sienna specifically went after Simon because it was Anthony's friend? I don't know if she knew. It's definitely possible that Anthony talked about Simon before, but I also am not sure that that really came up in their kind of whirlwind, super passionate relationship. To me, it was probably more like she knows who the Duke is. Everyone in town except Daphne knows who the Duke is. And he's clearly the most interesting guy in the room to talk to for her. Hashtag Team Sienna. All right. Well, Anthony's scene continues on when he finds Daphne going downstairs to make some more milk. And we have our first sibling duo scene, maybe since the duty horseback ride for a while. 
So in this scene, Simon is the main topic of conversation and Daphne basically is trying to feel out Anthony, figure out like, hey, what's the deal with Simon? Why is he so opposed to marriage? And Anthony's response is effectively, he spent his entire life alone. I personally thought this was a really weird response. If you spent your entire life alone, why would you want to continue to spend your entire life alone? I don't, I mean, I think this is just one more point in favor of Anthony is simple-minded too. The fact that he buys this or thinks this is the reason he doesn't want to get married, super uncompelling to me. I don't know. I mean, so there, this, this is my grand theory that Anthony and Simon aren't actually great friends. And <laughs> like this, this just kind of backs it up because, you know, in, in all our years of friendship, you know, we never, never really talked about, you know, anything beyond that. So yeah, seems good. Can we also talk about the fact that Daphne left and her milk jug was still basically completely full? Did no one else notice that? I was like, wow, she was really just hoping she ran into Anthony could like kind of pick his brain about the Simon situation. Also, did she drink straight from the jug? They both did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but they had their own jugs. That was a lot of milk. Like, that's a lot of milk to drink at one time. We have another dress scene after that where... Genevieve Delacroix is taking Marina's measurements again, and she makes this snide comment about perhaps I took your measurements wrong before, which was, you know, a bit much. I I guess if a dressmaker said that to me, I'd be like, you're fired. Yeah, it did seem odd. It also just didn't feel believable to me because she's only like maybe one, two months pregnant at this point, And I feel like realistically, there's not going to be any significant change. Uh, to the point right. that she's going to have to re the dress. It also definitely made me think, even though we might romanticize this past and think, oh, wouldn't it be fun if you know we lived in this time with our balls and suitors? I also would not want someone constantly taking my measurements, especially right now during the pandemic, and reminding me that I gained weight. Like, thank you, Genevieve. Thank you. Okay, from there, we get transported to the next scene where there's some new wing opening somewhere. I assumed it was the palace, but maybe I'm wrong. And we get to see uh, Miss Cowper's hair of braids. I kept looking at her hair this entire episode because it looked terribly uncomfortable. She's like the tiny little braids that they weave into her updo that looks like it would take forever to take out. That caught my attention very quickly. And then there's Kat, your favorite character, Eloise, going off about the male gaze in a painting. Did you have any thoughts for your favorite character? So two things. One, if it makes you feel any better about Miss Cowper's hair, I actually watched this YouTube tutorial recently about Victorian hairdos. And apparently a lot of times they actually made effectively kind of like a mini extension. They called them switches of your own hair. They cut it off, like make it into a braid or whatever, and then like reattach it to your head when you do an updo. So it is your hair, but it's just like a fake thing that you kind of put on to make it look better or fuller or whatever. So maybe that makes you feel better about it not actually being painful because it's not attached to your head anymore. And now back to Eloise. So Eloise, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with her. I really think this show makes her into, like they're almost making fun of her as a feminist trope. Like she keeps going off about you know, things like the male gaze or you get to follow your dreams. And they make her kind of into this like, constant nag character she's not fun except you know when she's doing things like not realizing how babies are made so it's more like again making fun of her so even though they're trying to clearly make some commentary about the treatment of women and use a character other than Daphne to do this I actually think Eloise is a little again overwritten 
so much playing into the feminist stereotypes and tropes so as to be kind of unapproachable and not actually an enjoyable character in some ways. Well, I would have thought that you, Kat, as a card-carrying member of Team Sienna and by extension Team Genevieve, would have actually appreciated Eloise as kind of like a, a foil to their characters, who I think are like the actual kind of you know reasonable representations of feminist characters in that era. Whereas Eloise is like this caricature of this 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 child, basically, where you know, yeah, she she says stuff to her brother where she's like. Hey, you know, you know, you could you could make your way in the world and you know do your artsy fartsy stuff and you know because you're a man. When it's like, well, look, Eloise, like you you can do that stuff too. You know, you at least have the option of doing that. Whereas, you know, you look at the other women in the world that have pursued that, and it's tough life, tough life on Team Sienna. That's actually a great point. I think that's exactly the word I'm looking for. They make Eloise into a caricature of a feminist and that really bothers me as a hardcore feminist. On the other hand, in the same scene, Marina is being introduced to this really old, you know, kind of meh, icky gentleman. And he says, you know, something about how the pleasure is all mine. And she's like, entirely. I thought she was super on point, like very quick, to respond, show what she's thinking. Of course, you know, he doesn't love this interaction and walks off, but I really enjoyed Marina being really sharp and I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is. Like, she's just sharp. She's on it. Yeah. I don't know. I, I We'll get to it later in the episode when she's at the next ball, but I don't know if her only admirers left are the older men. I think that's just the ones being presented to her right now. So I, I feel like it's... This constant crack in her storyline that I, I wish they would have shown like a younger man right here to see what her response would have been. Yeah, I think this is an interesting point that you've made about we don't really understand Marina Marina's character yet and why she does the things she does in terms of when she chooses to engage and you know really interact with potential suitors and when she kind of completely shuts them down and is it just related to how eligible or interesting they are, or is it at something else? Right. And from here, we get to Benedict going off about the painting, when he's saying like the painting is <laughs> terrible, basically really missing the mark to Lady Danbury. She's like eating it up <laughs> as he's talking, and then makes this snide remark that you can tell the, the, you know, the artist is right next to us if you want to tell him your feedback. She is such a pot stirrer. She really enjoyed the fact that Mr. Grandel, the painter, was standing next to them the whole time. And she absolutely could have said something or indicated something to him. But, you know, you have to kind of admire her dedication to just getting maximum personal enjoyment and does not care about the awkwardness or results for anyone else involved. I mean, she's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> but I actually, yeah, I, I thought Benedict like just went off on the painting on his own. It's not like she asked him, like, what do you think of this? Like, do you hate this painting? You know, like he, he was going off and making his comments like in a very loud room again where anyone can hear him. I guess you just, they associate that the artist is not in attendance to hear him, right? I kind of felt for him. I mean, I've definitely been in that kind of situation before where I've said really awkward, you know, super harsh things and then realized the person was sitting right behind me or something. Happened to me a lot. 
and I, I think it's subtle, but she is totally egging him on. Like he makes a comment, and she's like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Go on. <laughs> what else do you have to say?" <laughs> um, no, definite potster. In this same art wing opening scene, we also have Daphne hanging out with Prince Friedrich again, chatting it up a bit. And he's trying to tell her about Vienna and she sees the Duke across the room and completely zones out. This is what he's saying. Yeah, I I just really want to know, is this like what guys are looking for? Like when, when they're really just not into them and not interested? Because like the prince really seems like, oh, like, wow, like she's not interested in me. This is like super intriguing. But it really does seem like he likes the challenge. Do you think so? I actually can't tell if it was more just like, who is this like rude chick who we're, we just started having a conversation and then she's clearly looking off to the side. I wasn't, I guess, getting vibes that he might be interested in her beyond the fact that he clearly thinks she's pretty and has exquisite gowns. I don't think it's working. Yeah, I did like every scene of the prince with Daphne kind of made me wonder what it would have been like if Simon had never been in the picture like would she have acted mm. just like all the other girls would she have already been married off like maybe she would have had to marry Burbrook maybe she would have already had to marry him I think it's just like for me whenever I see these scenes where she kind of has this like higher level realization that like she doesn't have to play into him as much um it just makes me wonder about like all the different what ifs it kind of moves on and follows Simon into the room where they start talking about basically flirting i mean they're going back and forth and bantering about how much they love to like trick whistle down and how much they're kind of enjoying this whole ruse together they talk about the painting as well that daphne makes lots of comments on maybe you guys have thoughts on this i was just like okay like i guess guys are really into it when women talk about art uh, but <laughs> i mean like i was like i guess it's just so anti what probably he thought about the painting that he found it attractive but I don't know. I, I thought the other the, the the ending of the scene is more interesting to me than the art. You mean when they almost hold hands? They did hold hands. Okay, sure. They they did hold hands. This scene was so eye rolly for me that I really struggled through it. I felt like nothing she said about the painting was particularly deep, but he acted like he just been through a, a serious TED talk about this painting and made him think about his mom and. Maybe it was supposed to be like, oh my gosh, my mom would have loved Daphne, but I was cringing the whole time. I was also really distracted watching this a second time because Simon's voice is like really breathy and deep in this scene. And I recently <laughs> watched an interview of him and he doesn't sound like that at all normally. I found it really distracting, not in a good way, before you guys make any judgments about what I just said. But yes, this does lead up into their hand touch slash hold, which gets interrupted. I mean, I definitely thought of your TikTok stirrings thing when you said that just now, so I'm glad you clarified. Anyways, they, they hand touch, they hold. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? No. No. <laughs> you guys were not swayed. Okay, I can see it. But maybe Cressida will do it for you because she swoons and we get to see Frederick holding her on the ground. I was mostly entertained because Daphne and Simon were snickering and then he looks up at her. And I feel like at this time... If I would have looked up at someone laughing, it's either one of two things. Like, oh, they also are in on it. Like, it's she faked it. It's funny. Or, like, this girl's a bitch. Like, she's snickering at someone right. who just fainted. And I couldn't really tell which one it was with him. definitely think he was surprised by her reaction. 
I guess I'm also just on the train of almost everyone on this show is simple-minded because I don't think Friedrich was like, you're right, this is another ruse, if you will. And let's all kind of wink-wink together. I think he was more just like, that's weird. And, oh, wow, she and the Duke are really close, which kind of is related to Lady Whistledown's next release where she really stirs the pot again and asks the question, has the crown lost its luster since the diamond of the season isn't interested in Friedrich? And you can tell the queen is pissed. Oh, she mad. Next scene, we get to see the sisters, Daphne and Eloise, talking again. This is kind of their back and forth as Daphne can't finish her song on the piano. I mean, this was on the verge of a real fight between them. I I thought this was pretty realistic. Like... This, this is like my sister and my dynamic for a while. When you haven't like developed that respect for the things, like in this case, your sibling, that you know they're doing things that are different from you, but are like equally like valid or worthy of like validation. You know, you just don't understand like, you know, okay, this person has a different set of values from me, and you know, it's like why why aren't you valuing the things I value? <laughs> I think, you know, that it like, takes time to kind of work out and get to like the point where it's like, okay, we're doing different things. And they just haven't reached that point yet. You know, you say that, but they're basically going to have the same life. Eloise is kind of watching Daphne go through the motions that she's supposed to go through in a year from now. I, I didn't really get why she kept harping on the, the song not having a name. I know it's kind of like a setup for later, but... I was like, is that really what you would ask your sister? Like, oh, you can't play the piano without, like, naming your song? Like, I, I felt like I, I don't understand sometimes where their conversations are going. Having basically had this exact interaction with my sister when I'm trying to read a book <laughs> and she's playing an instrument, like, yeah, it's it's very annoying. <laughs> you, you're, you're just lashing out. It's like, just, just, just stop. Like, you played the same thing, like, ten times now. I'm trying to read. She also didn't have to be there. I don't understand. Like, why would you sit like a, like a few feet away from her? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she was there first. Okay. <laughs> All right. I can, I can. Now, now we're now we're in speculation land. <laughs> okay. Yeah. John. John is heavily identifying with Eloise now. <laughs> yeah. First it was Genevieve or Sienna. And now it's Eloise. I just I just like the strong female characters, regardless of how caricatured they are. <laughs> The next scene is another Lady Featherington scene where she takes Marina out to, I guess, like the slums of London and tells her that this is your future if you don't follow my instructions to a T. And Marina tells her, you know what? I have a man who loves me. And kind of the, to me, the underlying subtext there was like, unlike you, since it's been mentioned before by Penelope that the Featheringtons don't actually have a love marriage. The main question that I actually came out of this with is, is Lady Featherington intercepting the letters from George or at the very least keeping an eye on the correspondence? Because she seems to know that George hasn't responded to Marina or at least that Marina hasn't received a letter from him recently. You know, I didn't think about that part like that. That would be like pretty, pretty devious. Like if, you know, she's she's just like in the middle here intercepting and you know it it adds like this layer of like manipulation in lady featherington's defense i actually think it's super easy to keep an eye on correspondence in that day and age so i don't think it would be that hard for her to keep an eye on it and if it were her you know if it was her daughter or anyone else i think i would also be suspicious of this guy and 
wanting to know, is he writing back? You know, is he actually claiming uh, paternity or anything like that? I think, you know, when Marina says, oh, I got this man who loves me. And, you know, Lady Featherington's response to that is basically men will say anything to get in your pants, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, whew. <laughs> uh, she's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like, again, who hurts you, Lady Featherington? <laughs> Damn. <laughs> it's it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's in stark contrast to the other motherly advice that we got in this episode, which is marry your best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess feels a little more real. <laughs> yeah, I feel like both of them are pretty realistic in terms of things you hear from a mother, just, you know, taking back a few ages, like this one is... Be careful of guys because they don't have good intentions all the time, which I think we hear today. And then with the best friend thing, I think probably just depends on your parents' relationship. Like if that was something they experienced as well. To me, that it's actually two sides of the same mother. And Sabrina, you and I have the same mom. I can imagine her saying both of these things yeah. just depends on the mood she's in. So they could go right after each other. <laughs> <laughs> So from here, we get to go back to another promenade where Daphne and Simon meet up and have more for, like flirtatious banter and back and forth about, you know, Daphne tells Duke about her mom's comment and advice. He gives his own kind of uh, quick, sarcastic comment back saying that should he marry Anthony then, which would be very entertaining. I think like Anthony and Simon marry to each other, maybe more entertaining than Daphne and Duke, the Duke. But Especially given John's opinion that they're not actually real friends. <laughs> Okay, like, more evidence to this theory. Okay, Simon's <laughs> talking about, like, oh, you know, they're, they're talking about their exploits in college, and it's like, oh, yeah, Anthony brought an animal into the dorm, and I helped them out, so we're friends. I helped them get it out, so we're friends. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this is, I guess, our conspiracy theory of the episode. But continuing along on the promenade, There's a lot of flirting between Simon and Daphne, which leads to his whole Maspiration 101 class for Daphne, which I don't know how you two felt, but I was like, oh, this is really weird. And is he trying to flirt with her? I don't really understand what's going through his head. So I'd be really curious to hear what the male perspective is here. That is not a normal conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I... How how do you get on that subject? Like that's 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 weird. Like I, like who do you, like I, I don't know what like I, I, I'm just really at a loss. <laughs> you know, as you're saying that, that makes me kind of remember that when I saw this scene, it reminded me that the actor playing the Duke and the actor playing Daphne, you really feel their age difference in this scene. Like not only is there this clear knowledge gap that's you know s- supposed to be historically accurate you really notice that she looks like a 16, 17-year-old actor, and it feels kind of like predator grooming. Am I the only yeah, one? Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's supposed to be this really, like, sensual scene where, it, you know, Daphne almost looks like she's getting off just hearing about what happens when you're alone at night and not sleeping. But I don't know. I just felt uncomfortable. It felt like 
They are too far apart in age, and I don't feel good watching this. It doesn't feel sexy. It was just odd. That that was supposed to be sexy. I mean, I I do definitely think that end when he's like trying to talk about like how you build up to a pinnacle was a very like sexually intense, supposed to be sexually intense scene because they're both like really close to each other, and yeah, there's a lot of like close-up shots kind of of their faces at this point. We have another Benedict and Eloise smoking outside. Those two rebels, don't you love them scene? And Eloise talks about how she saw that he was sketching in his little sketchbook and berates him again about not following his dreams since he can as a man, you know, heavy underlying subtext, and I cannot as a woman. From there, <laughs> we get pretty much a nice montage of Daphne discovering herself and reaching her own pinnacle. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have any thoughts you want to share about this scene. I mean, I felt like, am I watching Netflix or HBO while watching this? Sean is silent. I, I have nothing to say. Okay. She has her own fun. And then she was able to finish the song the next day on the pianoforte. Her mother comes in with probably the best line of the entire show where she says, you finished. How lovely. I loved that part. I think I missed that the first time I watched it, believe it or not. But the second time I was like, How? wait, this is hilarious. Thank you, Viscountess, for bringing some real much needed humor into this show after such a long HBO-esque montage just before. I, I still love her. I love Lady Bridgerton. She's still my favorite character. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, we get another Anthony and Sienna scene. What does Team Sienna think of this? I was happy that she turned him down and was like, I'm not waiting around for you. Nothing's changed. Why are you coming crawling back into my life? I'm not going to be your fool again. Like, just for a moment, I was like, thank you, Sienna, for realizing that this guy is trash. He's just trying to crawl back into your bed. And then the next morning, as Sabrina's pointed out before, break things off again. Afterwards, we see another Marina scene, and, you know, this one's kind of sad where Penelope rushes in with this letter from George thinking it's going to be good news, and, you know, it's just kind of sad to see her realize that her baby daddy isn't this kind of perfect man that she's been imagining him to be and defending him to Lady Featherington. The timing of this letter is awfully convenient, isn't it? Right, because we learn that Lady Featherington and her lady's maid, Barley, actually wrote it by looking at previous letters and forging it. And they basically say that they think they've done what's right and best and that she has to learn at some point. I have to say, even though they try and make Lady Featherington look a little bit facetious afterwards where she's talking about, you know, redraw my eyebrows. I don't want to look constantly surprised. I actually think the way that, you know, she portrayed this kind of showed that she did have maybe a little bit of self-doubt or wasn't entirely sure that it was the right thing to do. And she was kind of trying to convince herself that, hey, this is in her best interest. So you do feel bad even if you know it's possibly for the best. Right. And then we have another dressmaker scene at Genevieve's store. And we have, you know, Cressida's mom talking to the Viscountess about, thank goodness that she's going for the Duke so that Cressida can have the prince. The main thing that I thought about this scene and the previous Genevieve one is, wow, she really seems like she could be Lady Whistledown. Genevieve has all the intel. Like, she clearly can tell that something's going on with Marina and it's 
very much kind of sets it up as that, hey, she's kind of this silent pair of ears everywhere when things are happening and being talked about. I think there's there's also a scene where, like, I think Lady Danbury comments on, like, how Cressida's mom is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, she's not Asian, but she's definitely a tiger mom. <laughs> like, this is this is classic tiger mom. Like, look, look at my kid. <laughs> I mean, there, there's lots of fun little, little details. Like, you know, people comment on Cressida taking German lessons. You know, classic tiger mom thing. There. John, like, you really picked up on these tiger mom details. Did it resonate strongly with you? You know, maybe, maybe it did. Next, when the Viscountess and Anthony are talking, she asks him, what time do you have? And I did not understand this. Why, why did she ask him that? What narrative point did that serve? So this whole episode, any any Viscountess Anthony interaction has been like, okay, this is triggering for me because like <laughs> as, a, as a person who has been single for much of my adult life, um, I, I, I picked up on this immediately because like at the first party, she's like, hey, what about this girl? What about this girl? It's like, you know, that that's just like classic mom to single son that's maybe getting up there in years type interaction. And she's like, Come on, man. What what time do you got? Which is a funny <laughs> double double meaning. I think in in your defense, well, I don't know how much in your defense, given how simple we think Anthony is, but I, I don't think Anthony initially picked up on it either. He he looked at the watch. Gotcha. Okay, I think that's fair. At the time, I was definitely like, why are they like harping on this father's heirloom clock watch whatever scene and and trying to figure out how it fit in. We'll move quite quickly from there onto the ball scene. Miss Cowper again has some crazy braided hair, not so subtly it's put into a crown. <laughs> so I think you're trying to like spell it out for the prince being like, I look great with this, like put a real one on it, which I found very entertaining. I have to ask you, do you think Friedrich is actually into Cressida at this point? Or, you know, like how do you read his overall perception of her so far? I thought at least he seemed interested. Like he hasn't, he definitely has shown probably the most interest in her compared to other girls, at least we see in the scene. So I was like, okay, maybe he's always dancing with her. They're around each other. He caught her or whatever. He's, he's just being kind of polite, man. Like, I don't think he likes any of, like, all, all the debutantes are being super basic. And like, okay, yeah, Cressida's the one that just happens to be trying the hardest because she's got the tiger mom. I never honestly seemed to get the sense that he was into Cressida. I think she really puts herself forward. As John has mentioned, she has a tiger mom. You know, she wants to get married. It's important to her. But I haven't seen any evidence that he's actually interested in her. Otherwise, I guess I would have expected at the, you know, luncheon with the queen when she tried to push him to get with Daphne that he would have, you know, said at least something along the lines of, oh, there are other interesting women, if not saying explicitly, hey, there's someone else that I'm actually exploring. So I don't, I don't kind of, I think that Cressida and her mom are maybe seeing seeing into him being polite and a gentleman and not telling her this is not a thing. All right, fair point. So from there, we also see that Marina's back and she is like playing it up. I really loved how Marina came back in and immediately put herself out. I mean, props to her for getting over a heartbreak that fast and prioritizing her future and her baby's future. Like At this point, it's clear that she understands what Lady Featherington is saying 
and is doing the work to try and find someone to provide for her and her child. And maybe, you know, for all we know, she is still really sad and heartbroken and is just putting on the face to, you know, get in there, get back out there, try and find someone. But I, I was impressed. Speaking of impressed, you know, Daphne is also playing the game and the Duke is really looking at her. You know, Prince comes over and is like, I simply must have your first dance. And she drops her fan, which clearly is another chapter from the book that she and Simon are co-authoring. Yeah, everyone really lost their shit over that fan job. Everyone's watching her. (laughs) And not only does he pick it up, he like picks it up and stops on his knee, like one knee, kind of like proposing and gives it back to her. Which I just thought was, like, really fun. <laughs> just, like, it's so overdone and overplayed. Right. So that was episode three. And as usual, I want to take a moment, ask you both, what were your favorite parts of this episode? Any favorite characters, especially for you, John? You know, this is your chance. Tell us who you think is great. I think, you know, as weird as that first dance scene was, I did like the like the, the set design for it. I think, you know, the, the unsung hero or maybe... Maybe maybe it has been sung, but like Queen's hair in every instance it shows up. Right. One of my fa- one of my favorite parts of this episode. And then yeah, I mean like he's basically a plot device, but you know, Prince Friedrich, he he gets the job done as a plot device. <laughs> you know, like you, you need you need him you need him there to to move things along. My new favorite character is Lady Featherington. I think she's smart. She's sharp she gets the job done she's been dealt kind of a shitty hand you know she and her husband clearly don't get along that well at least two of her daughters are kind of these like superficial not really well developed characters she and penelope don't get on that great she's definitely of lesser social standing than lady bridgerton and at the same time she's been given this distant cousin to chaperone who came to her already pregnant, I think a lot of people would have really just freaked out, you know, maybe exposed her, not done anything and let her kind of, you know, sink into her own doom. But Lady Featherington takes that hand that she's been dealt and plays it. And she's like, Marina, we are going to get through this together. Yes, selfishly, it's good for her and her family, but it's also in Marina's best interests. I respect that. Yeah, for me, uh, I know, Kat, you won't like this, but I really love Daphne's scene up until the end. Like, I think there is a scene with Rose, her lady's maid, where she says, like, let's do my hair like this. I want to wear this dress. And her maid's like, it will look perfect on you. And she said, good, that's what they want. And she makes it very clear that she is, you know, putting on a show and kind of like it's not. I mean, realistically, her heart's just been broken, too, kind of like Marina. So the Duke has just cast her aside and she's making the best out of it. I think it's very much a plot device we use even in real life of like if someone doesn't want you like you'll make them regret that and she really does like play up the game in the last scene of the show so I was a Daphne fan. I'm actually surprised it wasn't the first scene that the ball dream scene of Daphne's for you. I mean John John took precedence on that one. I did like it so maybe John can have it for his wedding one day because we already talked about what we want for our weddings <laughs> but I did like it. Uh, <laughs> there you go John. You're welcome. <laughs> I'll take it. Thank you for joining us this week, John. Appreciate the boy logic and thoughts explained to us. Not mansplained, actually explained what, you know, men talk about and the fact that it's not normal to give a quick, just real quick lesson on how to masturbate on, you know, your third date or whatever. Super helpful. 
Thanks for joining us this week, and we'll be back soon with episode four. 